excuse me this morning for my voice. I guess it might be from going to the FC Cincinnati game last night. I don't know. I did do some yelling, so I guess that's probably the most likely. <clears throat> well, we've made it to 2 Kings 16, and what a doozy of a chapter. Not real long. Shocking things in this chapter. Even after all of the chapters of 1 Kings and the first 15 chapters of 2 Kings, even compared to what we've read about the kings of Israel, because in Judah things have been different. Not always good, right? We had the influence of Ahab and Jezebel come from the northern kingdom of Israel into the southern kingdom of Judah, and that was a pretty bad time for the kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> but now we have Ahaz. And Ahaz is the only king of Judah who we are told did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David. Now I'm not saying he was the only bad king in Judah, but it's, it's interesting <clears throat> that you, you have this specifically described, this king specifically described in contrast to David in the kingdom of David. Why was he described as uh, so particularly doing not what was right in the sight of the Lord? Well, we read in verse 3 that instead what he did was he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now we're going to open that up a little bit because there's several different elements to it. <clears throat> but it continues on and it says, And he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. That's the second thing. Third thing, verse 4, He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, <clears throat> there's more actually, as you go through the rest of the chapter, but it's more uh, as you get into the narrative of how he approached his life. But those are the things that are called out at the beginning, immediately after we're told he didn't walk in the way of his father, David. Well, let's pause for a second and think about what these things mean. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. <clears throat> We're going to see later on specifically the way that he changed worship, just like Jeroboam was changing worship, so that the people were not worshiping as the Lord had commanded, but the king was deciding to introduce idolatrous ideas and principles into the worship of the Lord's people even as they claimed to continue to be worshiping the Lord. But that's passed over quickly when you read the next half of that sentence, and even made his son pass through the fire. So the reason that this verse is the way it is is because it's comparing him to other people, like the kings of Israel. 
But not just like the kings of Israel, but at the end of the verse, you got him going much further than the kings of Israel. And actually, he's being like the people that were cast out of the land. Because he's doing the very things that got them cast out of the land. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. So if you're looking for the, the structure, it's, it's pretty simple. He's not doing like David, his father, right? And he is doing like the wicked kings of Israel who have over and over and over again followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. And even worse, he's doing like the nations that were before the, any of the Israelites were in the land and who got cast out for doing these things. And what are these things? Child sacrifice. Burning their children to idols, to false gods. You may run into people arguing that there was a... Uh, just that this was just some sort of a religious ceremony and didn't actually result in the death of any children. It's a ridiculous claim. All right. Um, and as archaeologists have begun to look into the cultures of this area, and not just this area in the world, <clears throat> the horror of child sacrifice is opened up more and more. And it's a, it is a truly horrifying thing to read about. There is one question that's left open in the minds of the academics today, and it almost doesn't matter. It's just a question of whether the children were killed and then burned, or whether they were burned alive. Now, that's what King Ahaz did to children, but not just to children generically. He made his son pass through the fire. What a horrific thing to think about. When you think of the nations of South America that practiced human sacrifice, <clears throat> um, and you think of the you think of the, the people who are in power who are who are taking others and murdering them, sacrificing them up to the demon gods. All right. What I always thought was, well, you know, clearly they would select some random person or, or somebody who is the child of an enemy or, you know, all these sorts of away from you. But, but as you look into it more, what you find is that it was not uncommon that 
these would be the very children of those who were in power. These would be people who were chosen specifically because they were uh, valuable in a sense. And so here the king is passing his own son through the fire. Murdering, killing children of his own. It's easy for us to hate that wickedness. It's easy for us to hate the very idea and yet, do we hate the very idea? Our land is filled with people who are sacrificing their children to the demon gods who promise prosperity if you will simply execute your children. Do we abhor it? Like God abhors it. Does the fact that our streets run with blood cause us shock, cause us horror, the way that God is horrified at the people who lived in the land before the Israelites were brought in? Or have we come to accept it as just the way things are, just the state of the land, something that we don't participate in? Now, the people of Judah <clears throat> historically have not participated in this. So how is it that all of a sudden the king is doing it? Well, we've looked at the sacrificing on the high places. And that's brought up next. As the thing that was different about him. Verse 4. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And on the hills and under every green tree. This is something that we've been reading about. In the land of Judah. For many many kings. Right? So we're talking decade after decade after decade after decade. The people were not prohibited, were not prevented from making sacrifices, burning incense on the high places. And now all of a sudden the king is doing it. And as the king gives himself over to it, suddenly we're running headlong into all of the wickedness, not just of burning incense and sacrificing on the high places, but the idolatry of Israel, the idolatry of the nations around, and the idolatry of the nations that were there and that have already been cast out. It's, it's headlong into everything. It's rapid degeneration, right? <clears throat> and he was king for 16 years. Now, can you imagine being under that king? 16 years isn't, is only medium length. It's not long length, especially for some of the kings of Judah. You've got 40-year reigns. 16 years is 
still long enough for us to think, you know what? That's four elections worth of presidents. We're ready after four years, right? (laughs) Okay, it's often time to move along, and after eight, you're right out. He's king for 16 years, and he's giving himself over. In contrast to his father's, in contrast to his grandfather and great-grandfather, in contrast to King David, right? He's running headlong into all of the wickedness that he can find. But you don't see this being really a shock when the people have been wanting these things, when the people have been sacrificing on the hilltops and so forth for generations. They just go along with each other. That's what the text is doing. It's drawing them together and showing the association between the idolatrous worship of idols and of a false worship of the Lord that happens on the high places, right? And what's motivating that and what happens when it is let loose to run its course, And see, what I want you to see is the things that when you let loose, if they're to run their course, what is the end? And you say, well, don't worry, I won't ever let loose. I'll only, I'll I'll sin, but I'll only sin this far and no further. Well, you might be restrained by many things, right? Right? We, we can be very thankful for laws that help restrain us from giving ourselves over to certain kinds of sin, right? We can be very thankful for shame that would prevent us from, from certain sins. We can, like, these are not the things that are best motivations for us not to sin, right? What we want is our hearts to not be seeking after. We, what we want is our hearts not to be up on the high places, What we want is our hearts to be turned towards the Lord. That's what we really want. If we we want to truly avoid sin, then we won't be on the high places. We won't be like, well, I'll only go this far. No, we're going to go all the way in serving the Lord. Because that's where our heart is. What a difference between that and well, I'm restrained by this, and I'm restrained by that, and I'm restrained by the fact that we've got a king and a priest and so forth, right? We, we, have, we have structures in place that keep us from doing things like sacrificing our children to Chemosh. Well, now here in this nation, there's a question of what, it, what it's going to be. We've had laws that say, no, you can do that, that's fine. We'll erect altars all over the nation for you to sacrifice your children to the gods. And now you've got, well, uh, uh, are we going to do it or aren't we? We might be here for 16 years trying to decide, right? I mean, after all, it was 50 years of kill them all. So can, can we be thankful when restraints come that limit that or that outlaw it? Oh yeah, we can be thankful. We ought to be thankful, right? 
What a joyful change that is. But it's very easy for us to think, well, you know, what happens, happens. It's, it's too bad if this happens. It would be better if that happens. It would be better still if that happened. But, you know, um, that's not likely in Ohio. We're not going to ban, we're not going to outlaw abortion in Ohio, right? I mean, come on, look at the votes. Look at the numbers. And we'll just keep living. It'll be fine. Well, Ahaz is the beginning of the Lord showing the people, it's not going to be fine if you just live restrained only by the things that are of this world. It's not going to be fine because I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'll give you a ruler like what you want that will let you go as far as you want. Who will join you in your wickedness, in your heart's desires. And here's the story of what happens when you have a king like that. Ahaz. Ahaz didn't just allow the people to continue their cult worship on the high places. He did it himself. And it makes a point of saying he did it all over the place. It's kind of funny when you think about being king. Like you, you're, you have a lot of responsibility, you have a lot of uh, Things you're supposed to do, right? But you got a lot of power too. You know what? I think it's time for a a trip up to... We haven't been that three hours over to such and such to make a sacrifice yet. Let's see if we can get some benefit from burning incense up there. And why? Well, because things are not going particularly good for Ahaz and for the kingdom of Judah at this time. And so, you know, uh, it's funny. He, he gets two groups fighting against him. They are allied together, and you wouldn't expect them to be allied together. It's Aram and Ephraim. Now, who is Ephraim? Any of you kids tell me who Ephraim is? Yeah, you can tell me. One of the 12 tribes of Israel, exactly. And who is Aram? Do any of you guys remember what we've been reading about Aram? What, what Aram has been doing in previous chapters? Uh, uh, Ben-Hadad, remember that name? And even worse than Ben-Hadad was who? Yeah. Tiglath-Pileser, no, see, this is, this is important. That's a mistake. You're wrong. It's okay. This is an easy mistake to make. And it's important for us to, I needed to clarify this anyway, because Syria and Assyria, very different. Okay? And we've got to keep them both straight in our minds because they both are in this chapter. And Aram is another word for Syria. Okay? The kingdom of Aram. The kingdom of Syria, the same kingdom. King Ben-Hadad was in Syria or Aram. And there was another king 
who Elisha began crying when he told him, I'm crying because of all the things you're going to do to the children of Israel. Does that give you enough? Yeah. What? Hazael, exactly. Yeah. So, so you got Hazael and Ben-Hadad, and they're part of, they're the kings of Aram, all right? And they're constantly attacking Israel. And they're destroying Israel. God is using them to punish Israel. Now, in this chapter, we've got Aram, the same kingdom, allied with Ephraim, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, attacking together Judah. That's unexpected, right? Unexpected. And not just attacking, but it's, it's going pretty well for them. It's going really badly for Judah. You don't get quite as uh, much a picture of it in this. You get a little description <clears throat> here in Kings um, where it says that uh, immediately after talking about his burnings and sacrificing on the high places, it says in verse 5, Rezin, so the new king of Aram, Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. If you read in Chronicles, the rest of the story, <clears throat> well, we get, we get one more verse. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram. So Elath had been taken over by Judah, no longer part of Judah. Stripped out of the land or out of the hand of King Ahaz, and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath and have lived there to this day. <clears throat> so it's not going well for Ahaz. It is going well for this new unholy alliance between Israel and the enemies of Israel. Attacking the people of the Lord. If you read about it in Chronicles, which I was about to bring up before, you get a little bit more of a picture of how disastrous it's really been for Ahaz throughout this time. And you get a, you get a little feel for it when it says that he was besieged. So you've got the capital city, and presumably that's where he is, and they're surrounding it. If you're besieged as the king, and you're stuck in one city, the rest of the land is pretty well up for grabs, right? Except for walled cities that are able to withstand this attack. So Ahaz, if we, if, if, if we were to put ourselves in his shoes or in the shoes of the people who are living in his land at this time, okay, you'd realize he's desperate. He's desperate. And that would begin maybe to make sense of some of what we see him doing. Running to the high places, 
even going to the extent of sacrificing his own son to a false god. And so what I want you to see about Ahaz is that he is afraid of the wrong things. Very reasonable fears from the standpoint of the world and worldly wisdom. But he is afraid of the wrong things. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of Israel and Aram. Why is he afraid of Israel and Aram? Because they're destroying his kingdom. Come on, what do you mean why am I afraid of them? And so he makes the mistake of, verse 7, sending messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Now, Assyria was bad. Assyria was the worst. Assyria was also the big bad bully of the time. So, Aram and Israel are having their little fight, you know. Assyria is taking over the whole world. Aram and Israel join forces to fight against Judah. And what they seem to be trying to do is to create a big enough kingdom to withstand Assyria. So, they're going to try to put somebody else on the throne. Now, let me read from Isaiah. We got six or seven verses here, so pay attention. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. Okay, so this is the context, right? We've got Isaiah, the prophet, being sent by the Lord to talk to this king, Ahaz. You and your son Shir Joshib at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, oh, this is, by the way, this is where he's going to be. Take your son with you. I think it's pretty cool, by the way, that he takes his son with him. But I got to go with my dad to all kinds of really boring meetings and stuff. And I'm really thankful for it today. Anyway, he got to take his son, Isaiah got to take his son Shir Joshib with him. And here's what he's supposed to say to Ahaz at that time. Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted. Remember I said he's afraid of the wrong things? Here we have this command from God through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz not to be afraid, right? Don't be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Now, have any of you kids ever seen the candle wick after you blow out a candle and it's still red? It's not burning, it's not, there's no flame, but you, you know how it's still red for a little bit and then it smokes as it goes out and, it, and then it's done? That's a smoldering firebrand. It's about to go out. There's no fire, there's no danger, 
all that's going to be is the smoke of when it goes out the rest of the way. In fact, you can just take your finger and put it out the rest of the way. It's so small, yeah, it's hot, but it's so small, you, you can actually absorb that amount of heat, no problem, into your skin. It's not dangerous. Don't any of you try this at home, you'll get wax everywhere and your mom will yell at me. This is what God calls, well, let's, let me keep reading. Don't be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. I love the stubs, too. It's like, there's nothing left, by the way. Even if they were to catch back on fire, how long would they burn? There's, there's nothing left. They're just stubs, and they're smoldering. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has planned evil against you. So, who are the two stubs of smoldering firebrands? It's Israel and Aram. The people that Ahaz is afraid of because they're destroying him. That's what he would say. They're not stubs of smoldering firebrands. Look what they've done. They've, they've burned the whole countryside. They've planned evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So they're going to take out Ahaz, and they're going to put a new king in his place. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. It's not going to happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. God has now prophesied through Isaiah about Israel to Judah, saying they're going away. They're not even going to be a people anymore within 65 years. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Now that's important close to this quote from Isaiah, okay? It's an important ending. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. If you will not believe what? That there is nothing to fear from these two smoldering stubs, Israel and Aram. These enemies that were defeating Ahaz and Judah so, so soundly. Do not be afraid. Do not be faint-hearted because of them. If you will not believe that I'm going to end them, then you will not last. Does he believe that God is going to end them? No. And you can see it in his actions. You can see it in his actions. Because what does he do? He runs to Assyria. I've already described enough horror as we've thought about child sacrifice. So I will not describe what Assyria did to people. But needless to say, of all of the people that I have studied in history, 
all the conquering nations and all of the... I, there's one group I would not want to face. It's not the Mongol hordes. It's the Assyrians. They were awful. They were terrible with what they did to the people that they conquered. And so what is Ahaz doing? He's putting his hope in hopeless things. He's putting his hope in hopeless things. In child sacrifice. What has child sacrifice accomplished for the nations that were in Israel before? Their disappearance. And of course, that's what we're beginning to see all over the world. And everyone's beginning to realize, hey, you know what? If we kill all of our children, there's not going to be anybody around. He puts his hope in child sacrifice. He puts his hope in the king of Assyria when God had said to trust in him. And what does he say? What does Ahaz say to the king of Assyria? He sends a message to him. Verse 7, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Now, the, the king of Judah is the son of David, right? Son of David, son of the Lord. Who is he supposed to be saying, I am your son, I am your servant to? Come up and save me. Who's he supposed to be saying that to? God, right? Who are you going to call out to when you need help? I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me. Great words. Who are you going to say them to? I am your servant and your son. Come and deliver me. It sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? Except he's speaking to Tiglath. Pleaser, king of Assyria. And so, yes, I asked who was worse than Ben Hadad, and Tiglath Pleaser is a great answer. Tiglath Pleaser is way worse than Ben Hadad, Liam. There's no hope in Tiglath Pleaser. Yeah, he's the bully. Yeah, he's beating all the world. Yeah, he's going to take Israel into exile, right? Assyria is going to destroy the northern kingdom. But is he your hope? Worldly power and worldly wisdom say, yeah, here's your hope. We're going to have victory. We're going to have victory. 
might. And in fact, he is delivered. Tiglath-Pileser comes and takes Damascus, and Damascus is the capital city of Syria or Aram. And so it says that they meet each other, Tiglath-Pileser and Ahaz meet in Damascus. And what happens when they meet in Damascus? This is just crazy. Ahaz sees something glorious there, a temple and an altar, and he's like, wow, i got to have one of those. And so he sends plans down home and says, I want this built before I get home. And he begins to make changes to the temple of the Lord. And when he gets back, he implements change in how the worship is performed in the temple of the Lord. What is this guy thinking? Now, let's just think about it from a worldly perspective, okay? If you read about it in Chronicles, it says that he thinks that Damascus, who has been defeating him, who has been so powerful against him, their God must be worthwhile to worship. And so that's part of what it says is his reason for what he's doing. But I want you to just stop for a second and think. How did he get to Damascus to see this in the first place? The only way it happens is if Damascus is defeated. He's putting his hope in a defeated God of a defeated kingdom. Even from a worldly perspective, it's absurd. What are they thinking? Yeah, he's been beating, the king of Damascus has been defeating him, but the king of Assyria just defeated Damascus, so come on. There's nothing to worship there. There's no power there. Well, okay, here's, here's where we have to begin to make application to ourselves. We'll understand him better. Because remember I said he's afraid of the wrong things? He's afraid of Damascus still. He's afraid of the kingdom of Aram. He still thinks that they have power. And so, the things that we are afraid of show what we think our security is in. The things that we are afraid of reveal something about ourselves. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Do you fear the Lord or do you fear your boss? Do you fear the economic situation of the country? Do you fear the moral situation of the world? Do you, what do you fear? Because all the things that you can fear compared to fearing the Lord 
are going to lead you into wrong actions. If you fear the Lord, you'll cry out to Him and you'll say, come up and deliver me. Because, yeah, there's all sorts of things that we need to be rescued from. Yeah, the economic situation could collapse. Yeah, China could invade. Yeah, the moral situation is horrific. Yeah, we could get fired. Yeah, we could have loss of life, loss of limb, loss of freedom, loss of power. Yeah, we could face something that we've already faced again. We think, I couldn't face it again. Right? And that's what he is about Damascus. I faced him before. I sat under siege in Jerusalem. I can't face it again. It'll undo me. I'm afraid of it. And so what? Do you turn to God at that moment and say, God, you are my strength. You are my power. Come and Deliver me. Into, into your hands I commit myself, body and soul. Or do you begin to take things into your own hands and begin to look for ways out? And this, by the way, I, I see this all the time with the way that Christians begin to look to politics to be their salvation. If we could just get so-and-so elected, if we could just get this law changed, if we could just get that done, see, we're going we're gonna to look to the human process that we've set up, right, to be our salvation. Is it going to work? No. It's never going to work. And it doesn't mean that there's not good and bad rulers and good and bad laws and that there aren't good and bad systems, Right? It just means you can't look there for your hope. It's not going to work. It's not going to save you. It's not going to be our rescue. You can't look to any official or any potential elected person and be like, come up and save us. They won't do it. They can't do it. Only God can do it. Now, they might give you deliverance from the thing you fear for a time. Tiglath-Pileser delivers them from Aram, right? He, he takes Damascus. The king of Israel can ride into Damascus. The king of Aram can't ride into Jerusalem. And so it can look and feel very much like, yeah, I've, I've delivered myself from that thing I'm afraid of. Right? What's that thing you're afraid of? How are you delivering yourself from it? And of course, child sacrifice is how he thinks he's going to deliver himself. How many people in this land, that's precisely what they think will deliver them from the stress of economic uncertainty. The things that you are afraid of 
are directly connected to the things that you put your security in. They show what you think your security in is. Or, or the things that you are afraid of will reveal what you put your security in. You, you see, you'll, when you're afraid, what you run to. Forget, forget what you're afraid of, just what do you run to when you're afraid? What we do shows what we value and what we desire. What we sacrifice for and what we sacrifice to shows what we put our hope in. So what I want you to see, there's a, there's a great book by a guy, Pallison, called Seeing with New Eyes. And one of the chapters in it that I've found helpful over the years is called X-Ray Questions. And, and there's just a list of way too many questions to answer, okay? And you read three or four of them, and you can spend a lifetime thinking about them because it's just simple things that are meant to reveal things about yourself. X-ray, right? To be able to see inside what's going on in your heart. And it's things like, what makes you mad? That's it. It's a really simple question, right? What really gets you irritated? I think there's 37 of these questions. And what are you afraid of? I think is one of the questions. What are you afraid of? And I've given you some examples of things that you could be afraid of. The Bible tells us over and over again not to be afraid, but to fear only the Lord, right? And one of the things that we can't forget is that fear tells us something about ourselves. And what we do, how we react to fear. So, okay, maybe you've spent an hour thinking about what you're afraid of. What things that you, you put out of your mind and after half an hour you're like, oh yeah, I am afraid of that, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't even want to think about it. All right. So you spend an hour thinking about that. Now, then you got the question, what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid? That reveals what you're putting your hope in. It reveals where your trust is. What do you sacrifice for? What are things that are so worthwhile to you that you're willing to give up time, you're willing to give up money, you're willing to give up... Okay, these are things you're sacrificing for, right? What are they? Are they for the sake of the Lord? Now, I don't have time to go into the changes that Ahaz makes in worship, but I want you to remember... These changes flow out of what Ahaz is afraid of and what Ahaz desires. And so when he begins to look outward into the world and see things that are so great and glorious, look at that altar, that's impressive. Let's get one of those down in the temple, right? The church has been tempted and doing this for generations. 
millennia. All the way back to Ahaz and earlier, okay? And it's still a temptation for us today to try to look out into the world and be like, you know, what shows influence is when we look like this. Well, we can do that in worship. What shows power is when we do this. Ah, well, you know, we can, we can definitely make a show of that in worship. What shows prestige, what shows fine taste. And you know what? We're really good at this. And we really love bringing it in to worship. We really love bringing these things into worship to show what we find valuable, what we delight in, is natural to worship. And so when we begin to make changes to worship for the sake of what the world looks on as great or glorious or impressive, we begin to make those changes, I want you to see it's not driven by a love of the Lord and excellence, right? It's driven by worldly desires in the first place. Our worship is determined by what the Lord has said for us to do. That's it. That's all we do. Because we fear Him. And we look to Him to rescue us, to deliver us. We call out to Him, come up and save. Come up and deliver me. I am your son. I am your servant. That's it. My hope's in you. Not, look how impressive I am. Not, look how wonderful my music is. Not, look how glorious my intonation is. How fabulous my diction. Not, impressive my preacher. Right? No, none of these things. Just, the Lord and Him alone. And that's what we have as a body. We have the Lord. And that's what we celebrate. We're about to celebrate this meal together because we have the Lord. And we can cry out to Him, come and rescue. Behold, I am your servant. I am your son. Deliver me.